0: We made this. Ladies
1: and gentlemen, it was a cold-blooded, premeditated murder.
2: Hi, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of the Red and Buried podcast. I'm Frankie. I'm Sarah. And today, this is very exciting for us. We have our first returning guest to the literary graveyard... We have the wonderfully talented Greg Moss with us. Hello again, Greg.
0: I wish, I wish now that I'd said, "And I'm Greg." Oh. <laughs> when you did it, but I missed my chance, and now it's of it too You're basically
2: you're the you're are the, are the host at this point, Greg. You're back again. <laughs> Can't keep you away.
0: <laughs> I am back. here. I am. <laughs> yes.
2: Fantastic, lovely to see you again. Thank you for coming back. And this time, you get to and meet Sarah. Treat, yeah, the real treat.
0: Yes, it is. Absolutely. <laughs> it was a shame that we didn't meet last time. The thing is, if the more people are talking about books, the more likely you're going to hear about a book that will appeal to your sensibilities.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it's not like every book we ever talk about or every book we recommend, everybody we know goes out and buys it. But it's just being in that, in that culture, in that soup of books, you find the things that you like. Yeah. What a delicious
2: soup it is.
3: Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, this has been a real treat for me and Frankie, actually, because we both love cosy crime, so... Very much,
1: brilliant. Well, yeah. let's,
2: let's get into the bio sarah and then we can talk all about it. Okay. So, as always, written by
3: Frankie. So, any issues with it?
2: Yes. Direct this your rage at this Frankie. This is the routine. You missed this last time. Greg is like Sarah likes to take no responsibility for this podcast whatsoever. It's always just on me. So it's on me. <laughs> it's part of my She's
0: Bringing the energy in the cat. So that's okay. At
2: least exactly. she could do. Yeah. <laughs> all right.
3: Okay. <laughs> Greg Moss is a writer and encourager of writers and husband of international best-selling author Kate Moss. He has lived and worked in Paris, New York, Los Angeles and Madrid as an interpreter and translator, but grew up, like his new cosy hero Maisie Cooper, in rural southwest Sussex. In 2014, he founded the Criterion New Writing Playwriting Programme in the heart of the West End and since then has produced more than 25 of his own plays and musicals. His creative writing workshops are highly sought after at festivals at home and abroad. His first novel, The Coming Darkness, was published by Moonflower in 2022. His latest book, Murder at Church Lodge, sees Greg take an entirely different creative turn into the murderous world of cosy crime. Maisie Cooper is no detective, thank you very much, but she might just solve a murder. Mm -hmm. Maisie left the picture-perfect village of Framlington years ago, but when her brother asks for her help out of the blue, she soon finds herself back among the windy lanes and open green fields. But it's not the family reunion she hoped for. Upon arrival, she learns that she's too late. Stephen is dead. And not just dead, murdered. (sighs) No, no, no. Spoiler! <laughs> Frustrated by the slow police investigation headed up by handsome Sergeant Wingard, Maisie determines to start asking questions herself. In a village where everyone knows everyone, surely someone has some information about Stephen. But the longer Maisie stays, the deeper she digs, the more she begins to sense something sinister at the heart of the village. What secrets are the residents so desperate to keep hidden, and what exactly was her brother going to tell her before his mysterious demise? And when another death rocks the community, Maisie fears that she needs to catch the killer before they catch her. Mm. As well as being extremely talented and wonderfully kind, Greg is also the first returning guest to the podcast. So welcome back, Greg Moss.
1: Thank
0: you. That was fantastic. Well Well done, done, Frankie.
2: Well well done, Greg, for doing so much (laughs) and being so talented and doing all these different things and giving us so much (laughs) to say in a bio. That always helps. Yeah. 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 And so, as I, as I so astutely observed in my bio, Greg, this is a very different turn for you after The Coming Darkness, which I absolutely loved. You know, you've gone from dystopian spy thriller into the the more, uh, what's, the, what's the word, residential world of cosy crime. What inspired this turn for you?
0: Yeah, it's still a mystery, though. Isn't yeah. It? It's, yeah. It's, it, it's still a set of clues and only one, in the end, only one solution. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's the thing that we want, isn't it? Whether we're reading a thriller or a cosy crime novel or, I don't know, a domestic noir, there, there's a set of circumstances that explain why, why the bad things happen and only one. And you've got to find that pattern within all of the other stuff that happens. And it's, um, I think it's like, uh, so sometimes people ask me why, because I do so much story development work, people say, why is it that we're so interested in story? And I say it's because we as human beings, we're pattern-seeking creatures. We want to understand how the disparate things around us fit together.
2: Yep, very good point. I would say that's very true. And especially, why do you think in particular, not just stories, why are crime stories so mm. enduringly popular?
0: Well, it's ultimate, isn't it? It's, you know, it? it's like when in a thriller like The Coming Darkness, it needs to be, if not the end of the world, it needs to be something quite big. Do you remember when James Bond movies didn't have to be the end of the world? It could just be like somebody's going to get all the diamonds. (laughs) And, you know, next year there'd be more diamonds. (laughs) But that was okay as a plot thing back then. I remember when, isn't there a Star Wars movie that starts with three planets being destroyed by a Death Star all at once? And you think, well, where do you go from here? But, Mm -hmm. yes, a thriller needs something really massive, some unutterably awful calamity to be its climax. And then a cozy crime novel it needs that ultimate evil of cutting short somebody's life in uh, you'll remember frankie that in the coming darkness there are some um there's some connections to the pyrenees where one of my characters families are from and there is an old pyrenean saying which goes like this for everybody one day will be shorter Wow, you know that's the day of your death, yeah. right? Because you won't get all twenty-four hours of that day. Because you and it and it's that ultimate stop, that full stop put on somebody's life, makes it incredibly engrossing. I think.
2: Wow, that's very, very powerful and very true. I love that. Thank you. It's almost if like you're some sort of writer, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have yeah. seen that coming? Yeah, you know,
3: I I can't even begin to get my head around how someone writes cozy crime because. I just think it must take such skill to weave together these really dark stories at the heart of it, but leave the reader feeling, well, cozy, obviously. <laughs> and so, it, it, yeah, there are some books that you read and you finish it and it might be an amazing book, but you finish it and you're like, oh my God, that was awful. I feel <laughs> like I've just been battered around the head for six hours or whatever. I don't What do you think it is about cosy crime? I know there's the settings and all of that, but there's, there's no, no, something no, I think more. It's a,
0: really, it's a really good question. I think it's actually a really simple thing. At the end of the cosy crime novel, when the baddie or baddies have been identified, you have the sense that they will be punished oh. and that nobody That's else true. is a baddie. But, yeah. yeah. So if, if, if your lead character is, I mean, it was really lovely. Hodder and Stoughton agreed to put the cast of characters at the beginning of the book, which is something that I really yeah. love in the in version. And um, so you look down that list and, you know, some of them clearly uh, aren't, aren't going to be the perpetrator. But what are they? There's 10 or 12. And you know that once you've discovered who it is who did it, all those who didn't do it, they are innocent. Whereas in The Coming Darkness, mm-hmm. everybody's a bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And everybody has done stuff that, they, that they, were, they were forced into for the greater good or that they were given orders that they didn't feel that they could refuse and all of that stuff. Whereas in a cozy crime novel, once the perpetrator or perpetrators have been identified, everything's right with the world again.
3: Yeah, I really
2: like that.
0: Oh, and don't don't kill the dog or the cat as well. Oh my god, I'd stop
3: reading.
2: I think if that happened, honestly, that's the the best. That's the amazing thing about crime thrillers is that you can kill hundreds of people and nobody really bats an eyelid, but you kill a single cat and you are you're cancelled. That's your career done. It won't do. Yeah, absolutely not. No, definitely not. (laughs)
3: This is probably a really unfair question to ask you, because it might be a bit like choosing between your children. But do you have a preference about what's more enjoyable to write?
0: I think I'm super spoiled because I'm able to write them both. Most people that write two different genres, they they take another name, Mm. uh, you know, for the other books. Mm. And then I guess if it's not their name, it looks like it's a lesser thing because it's the pseudonym, not the real name. But yes, I'm, I'm really fortunate that the two... But I do come back to the first thing that I said to Frankie, that a good thriller is a, a set of clues sort of drowned in a sea of incident. And you're not sure what's the clues and what isn't. And while well, Cozy Crime is the same, there's a brilliant expression, French expression, about hiding clues. And it says, Noyer le poisson. If you drown the fish then you don't know where it is anymore. Anyway, <laughs> so that's what that's what you do. It does mean, though, that your cosy crime novel, I mean, some people think that they perhaps they'll be slow moving mm. or not much will happen, but they have to be absolutely packed full of incident. Yeah. Otherwise, the clues are really obvious. Yeah, right?
2: very, very Definitely. true. And I'm curious, was there a dramatically different uh, approach to the process for writing Cosy Crime versus The Coming Darkness?
0: So it happened first. Oh. I started writing the Cosy Crime series in February 2020, I was talking to a good friend of mine, Luigi Bonomi, who's a wonderful agent, and uh, we had been working together, and he said that he thought that I would do it well. So I sent him about 20,000 words a few weeks later and said, is this what you mean? And he said, yeah, that's exactly what I mean. Tell me when you finished it. And then there was, I don't know if you'll remember, this, but <laughs> there was uh, an international pandemic virus <laughs>
2: no I don't remember that what? Uh, yeah and
0: I got I got kind of distracted you <laughs> see if I if I moved my camera you could see the chair in which I was sat unable to produce to write and produce new theater because theater had become illegal <laughs> and I sat there and I wrote 170,000 words of this book which we then had to cut down because the coming darkness is 98,000 words so you can see that lots of it was cut and of course, you won't be surprised to hear that I saved those seventy-two thousand words for the coming storm for the following. Very smart. So yes. it wasn't until I'd done that and then started talking uh to an agent and a publisher about the coming darkness that I thought, "Oh, hang on a minute, I was—I was doing something else, wasn't I?" <laughs> and I and I went straight back to it, and I thought, oh, "This is quite good." Yes, and I—I I did change a couple of things. So. Murder at Church Lodge is set in 1972 uh, when I was 11, and I have very, very vivid memories of that time. And the 20,000-odd words I wrote when I was sort of experimenting with writing in that genre, uh, they were basic, they were present day. And I just realized that after all of the technology in The Coming Darkness in 2037, I didn't want any more of that. I didn't want any mobile phones, computers, search engines, electric cars, and anyway so i took it back to this moment in my own lifetime when i had really strong memories of living in living in poverty in rural sussex in a house with you know no hot water or no bathroom and so on and being aware of the class differences between those with with land and those without land those who worked on the land between the city and the country between the church hierarchy and the church's congregation you know all of those And I thought this, yes, if I move it to then, that's ripe for resentment.
2: (laughs) There was a really good line that Maisie says where uh, she says, I'm not posh. I just went to a posh school (laughs) and I felt that. (laughs) (laughs) Ditto. Very relatable (laughs) line.
0: (laughs) It's so true, isn't it? The circumstances like that, they don't make us different from our origins. No something we acquire like a patina on top but they're not actually what we are
2: no mm. class distinction is, is a really interesting point within that and I, i'm curious how much of the 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 location and things did you draw on from your own childhood then in your own experience
0: oh i mapped my memory <laughs> and you know but it, it, it is true the um they're not actually the, the names of the places are not the actual names of the places in southwest sussex but so you, know, you know I write plays and musicals. My composer partner, John, he's read um, the, a proof copy of Murder at Church Lodge, and he recognised every <laughs> Really? Because he knows that area really, really well. And, and then, of course, there was some... So names are funny, aren't they? Book two is Murder at Bunting Manor. Great name. All the titles have the same rhythm, Murder at Church Lodge, Murder at Bunting Manor, and so on and um and there's four of them that hodder are going to publish over the next 12 months which is great (laughs) um and when i when i wrote murder at bunting manor it was called murder at stoughton manor and stoughton was the actual name of the village where i was imagining the action and then my editor my wonderful editor at hodder and Stoughton, beth wakington said to me would you change the name of the village and i said why do you know it's the name of your company and they said, yeah, that's exactly
2: <laughs> how to pronounce it. I actually used to live in a village called Stoughton, so I know how to pronounce uh, it. Not the same one, but uh, yeah, that's okay. interesting. Bunting is fun as well. It's got that kind of real Britishness to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is very cute.
3: So four books coming out in the space of twelve months. Have you written four books in the space of twelve months, or has it been a slightly longer
0: process? <laughs> so remember, I started in February twenty twenty, which is yeah. quite a long way back in the rearview mirror. It doesn't feel
3: like it, but yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and because writing for me was uh, in the eight or nine years before the pandemic was write a play, put the play on, and plays a two act play is about twenty thousand words, so a quarter. Of, of a cosy crime novel, I'm used to a much quicker rhythm of getting things done. Mm. And if, if you think about it, if um, so I'm free to, I have other professional responsibilities like the Criterion New Writing Program and other things, but I am free on five or six days out of seven to sit in my chair and write for four hours and no one will interrupt me. Nice. So given that, it should be possible to have a first draft that I can read after, I don't know, two months. Wow. Well, not one. But (laughs) think about it. So if it's, if it's, um, that, that would be like 50 days, say, 50 days of somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 words a day. That's got to be 70,000 words, hasn't it? And it doesn't mean that it's good enough to show to anybody except my wife. (laughs) (laughs) But it is good enough to do that. Yeah. And then, of course, rewrite 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 and eventually it's a proper book
2: you make it sound so easy
3: <laughs> I, yeah i was just thinking about what i accomplished at work today personally which was nothing basically
2: your employers <laughs> are lucky to have you sarah <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> let me put another thing into the mix then i the work that i do in theater and to a lesser extent in tv and film and novel writing is uh, as an encourager of writers is to help people build plot so story development is a thing that i've been doing for 30 years yeah and it means that if you say to me if you told me in 50 words what's happening in your story i could immediately give you two or three or four next steps in your plot and then you could go away and write them or discard them because you've come up while i was talking with your own better idea and that's a completely normal thing for me so when i write a paragraph i always I know where I'm going in the paragraph I'm writing. I probably know where I'm going in the next page or two. And whilst I'm writing it in the background, my brain is doing the story development thing. I'm thinking, well, what would be, what comes next? What comes next? What comes next? Because a plot is a sequence of dominoes that fall through cause and effect. And every chapter ends with a question. And then the novel ends with a set of answers.
2: Yeah. he knows what he's talking about at this point i would say it still sounds
0: like an awful lot of work (laughs) but who am i to judge
2: (laughs) the thing is as well i think you in particular obviously you you've been writing all your life in various forms or another you're also surrounded by creative brains in your household obviously your incredibly talented wife who's been you know an incredible career of her own in terms of books that she's published Another one out on the 6th of July. You were just telling us as well. Very exciting. Yes. And your son as well, right?
0: So just to say it's out on the 6th of July so that Sarah can give it to you for your birthday. Thank I'm you, on it, Sarah.
3: Don't worry. Yeah. I'm on it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but yes, Felix is a very successful actor, script consultant. He works with me on the Criterion New Writing Programme. And of course, because the pandemic made him, like me, largely unemployed, he wrote also wrote a novel, which is a, in another style again, because his novel, "The Mistral," is a low fantasy novel set wow. in a um, a set of realms on an imagined landscape on an imagined planet, not our own Wow, wow. and uh, that's, that's a brilliant book, and he's currently editing that.
2: Your family, what is it in the water <laughs> over there? Jesus, can we have some. <laughs> But one thing I will say as well, for one theme I've kind of noticed through both your books, having read them both now, A uh, Coming Darkness and a Murder Church Lodge, you love a love story, right? There's a love story here.
1: Yeah. I
2: saw earlier on Twitter, in fact, uh, at the time of recording, the uh, you may have heard of this author, Sarah, called uh, Ian Rankin. I don't know if yeah. you know him. Heard the name. Yeah, quite, he's going to be quite big, I think. Uh, he... He's all right. It's
3: no Greg Moss. But...
2: <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> but he tweeted earlier saying, further proof that there's plenty of life in the traditional whodunit, and Greg Moss adds a poignant love story to the mix. So yeah, where does that come from?
0: Okay, so what I like in the climax of any novel is that I like lots of storylines resolved in the same drama. And it's really, it, it's, a, it's a really really strong traditional thing in cosy crime that by Agatha Christie or Naomi Marshall, Marjorie Allingham or whoever, that, the, that solving the murder mystery allows the right people to be together. Yeah. And I, think, I think that's a lovely parallel development. Of course, in the thriller, The Coming Darkness, what allows them to be together is that they survive. Yeah, <laughs> that helps. That's a spoiler, in the sense, but yeah. they are the heroes. <laughs> and there is a second volume, The Coming Storm. So, and I have actually, this will terrify you, I have actually written a couple of chapters of The Coming Fire, which is the third one. Of course you have. <laughs> yeah, but it, it, it was just there in the front of my mind. And it really, it doesn't take very long to write something not very good, <laughs> but has, that you could make good later on.
2: Wow. You are, you are on fire. You are The Coming Fire, Greg, because Jesus, do, do you ever rest? <laughs>
0: Ever? <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you, it's, it, I, I write between about 6.30 and 10.30 or 11 o'clock each morning, and that's it.
3: Wow. 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 But do you take a break between books, or do you find it easier, especially when you've been writing a sit se- or well, you're writing a couple of series, let's face it, is it easier actually just to go straight into the next one, or do you have a little mental health break?
0: <laughs> so I, I don't get frantic about the writing. Mm. So the last quarter of the book is harder to write than the first quarter. Because everything you've put in play, you have to narrow down to a climax and you have to make it all work. Yeah. But you see, I also have a second brain, not my own.
2: In a jar somewhere or?
0: <laughs> That's the brain of my editor, isn't it? Yeah. Who then applies herself brilliantly to it and points out to me that earlier on, it seemed, so really good example. In The Coming Storm, she pointed out in an early scene that this minor character seemed not to know about this planned terrorist outrage, and then later on, she—it seemed like she did know—and that had sort of repercussions in five or six scenes through the three hundred pages of the book.
2: Yeah.
0: Now, I, you might say, well, if you'd read it again, you—you might—you'd have noticed that. But there's a limit to the number of times you can read your own work without becoming completely blind to it. Yeah. And so the the editor's work there is is really fundamental, and it does mean that I don't sit in my chair worrying about it. Oh, look, here's another thing. Now, this comes up a lot. I, was, I taught um, a day's workshop on plotting mystery novels at the weekend. And somebody said to me, but how do you keep it all in your head at once? And, of course, I said, well, you don't. You, you write the bit you're writing. For example, if you've got a moment where you want the two characters to almost tell one another that they're in love, well, then that's what you write with the thing that interrupts that and means that it never happens and it leaves it in suspense. And in that moment, you're not writing about the terrible thing that's going to you know, sink the battleship or the, the awful next murder of the innocent victim that's going to happen. You're just doing that one thing. And then the, the person in the workshop said to me, yeah, but you do have to then step back, don't you? And I said, yeah, that's a brilliant description of it. Like a portrait painter, you lean in and you paint the detail then you step back. But what stepping back means is you go back to the beginning of the book and you turn the pages that you've written or you scroll through it on your computer and you make sure that everything's consistent with this new thing you've just written. So that's it. That's
2: it. (laughs) that's all. (laughs)
0: Yeah, you
2: know, that old thing.
0: You focus and you seek that creative flow in the moment and then you stand back and make it coherent with all the other bits that you've splurged out.
3: Can it be difficult sometimes to always pull it back in and, you know, bits that you've written where you go, actually, it doesn't really fit with the rest of it. So I'll have to drop that part. I think I'd really struggle to let go of things, but I guess that might be part of being a good writer.
0: Okay. So there's, I think there's two things here. The first, the first one is this. If the person that's giving you advice, loves what you've written, loves your book, then take it. Yeah. If they don't like it, ignore them. <laughs> don't take notes from people who don't love your book. There's no point. Yeah. Because they're clearly they're not in sync, are they? They're not in tune with what you're doing. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing, you, you can see it for yourself as well. You, you might have a, a section that, that you think is really effective, demonstrating a part of a character's personality and it's important. But if it obstructs the the rhythm of the of the action, you know, because the action has to rise and fall, mm. you know, it has to accelerate and then slow down and accelerate and so that whole thing, and if it's interrupting a really a good rhythm like that, well, then you've got two choices: you can cut it, which is not my first thought. You've got the other one, which is find a better place for it. Yeah. Yeah. Structure that reveal of whatever it is somewhere where it sits more comfortably in the plot yeah wow i'm not big on throwing bits away that's for sure
2: i wouldn't be either not after all that work (laughs) but you're right as well the parts you're saying that you cut out the coming darkness you'll be able to use again so you never know when you'll be able to make something work for something else or in a different place or
0: no you never know also, when I was um, writing The Coming Darkness and The Coming Storm, because they're set in 2037, I, was, I had to do a lot of research of the future.
1: Mm.
0: Uh, so I had to read lots of articles about what's going to happen in 15 years' time. <sighs> yeah, it's all very urgent and dramatic. <laughs> that's depressing, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, while, I, while I was doing that, I came across this really interesting thing that happens in floods. You may have seen this in the news. I, I found it completely horrifying. So in a flood, right? the water obviously creeps down into all the burrows of all the creepy crawlies yeah and so the worms and the cockroaches and the beetles and the snakes and the rats and the they all come out in this awful tide (sighs) (laughs) and i just saw some footage from australia oh no it was like a brown moving carpet of insect life trying to find higher ground climbing on people's cars up the steps of their houses, under the front door, it was just just appalling and I realized um, when i was um, when I was writing that that because in the coming storm there there is a flood, I wanted to evoke that as a possibility as a thing that might happen and so what I did was I placed it in my hero alex 's backstory and when he ha- uh, he had been um because he works for the French Secret service and he'd been in Haiti, which is a, a uh, a, a republic that the French government has supported for many years, mm. sort of kind of at arm's length. It's a difficult post colonial relationship, but the point was it's the sort of place where Alex might go and go on maneuvers, you know? Yeah. And what that meant, of course, was that Haiti was something in my book because I sent him there to do this thing. So when much later I wanted a destination for another strand of the story, which could have been in New Guinea or it could have been in New Caledonia, but no. It happens in Haiti because it's a place that already exists within the world of the book. Yeah. So if I come back to that question, that thing about it gets harder as you go along. But if, you, if you're sort of alert to everything that you've got in play, you can, you can make it narrow down nicely to a point, to a unifying climax, because you make everything come back again. Everything important, every important destination, every important
1: character. Mm.
2: Wow. Can I just say for everybody listening, uh, Greg is obviously fascinating to listen to speak. And if you're going to be at Harrogate Crime Festival this year in July, uh, you can hear Greg on a panel that I'm going to be moderating, which is very <laughs> exciting. It is. All about sp- the fascinating world of spies in writing spies in the shadow of Bond. Greg is on the panel with three other incredible authors who we've also, two of them have been on the podcast as well. The wonderful Ava Glass and Jack Dewars. And also Tim Glister. So if anyone does come to Harrogate, come and see us and hear more amazing gems from Greg about the writing process and about yeah. the world of spies and hear me trying to sound intelligent and ask him questions a bit like this. But...
0: <laughs> I think it's working.
2: Thanks. Oh, I try my best. Uh, I mean, <laughs> it's hard, but you make it very easy because you always give such incredible uh, erudite answers to everything. <laughs> So, well,
0: thank you. That's very kind of you.
2: You'll be a wonderful panellist. I'm very excited. So, Sarah, you're going to be missing out because we're going to be having all well, the fun at Harrogate. I might have actually come had I known before. I didn't know that until it was a few weeks like ago. That's my point, Frankie. I'm anyway, sorry. <laughs>
3: Greg, you have a finger in many, many pies as well. Is your focus now on novel writing or do you think you might go back towards playwriting? Do a bit of both? Plus all your other projects.
0: <laughs> Because the novel writing is moving quickly. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks due to Hodder and Stoughton for that. Because you know the first time we talked about it, there was the sort of the regular question of uh, Cam, do you think we could do one a year? And I said, well, I'd rather it was quicker. Than the Britain, right? <laughs> one a year. <laughs> you must
2: be the only person to have ever asked that question. I would say.
0: Yes. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Well, th- and then there was the the idea uh, that uh, for Moonflower would like to publish The Coming Storm relatively soon. So the hardback of The Coming Darkness was uh, last November. The Coming Storm will come out in hardback next April. So that's only 18 months apart, isn't mm-hmm. it? Which is quite, quite close. So, there's, so I haven't got time, but I do do other small things. On the shelf behind me is my Oculus headset because mm. I've recently been working with one of my colleagues. Uh, in It's a really remarkable thing that he's created. He's done all of the technological stuff, He's created a neighborhood of Los Angeles that you can visit with your headset or even on the screen of your phone, (laughs) and it sort of sits on the table. So it's not a 360-degree all-encompassing VR experience. It's an augmented reality experience, and it's small sitting on the table in front of you. And it's a complete, almost novelistic story in the sense that there's a narrator voice, and that was me, And then there's characters who have been captured through volumetric capture, which is a a very remarkable technology where with multiple camera points, you essentially can capture somebody acting and then render that as an avatar, as a, a slightly cartoonish character in the AR world. But all of their acting, their facial expressions and their gestures, they go into the AR world as that character. It's a really remarkable thing. Anyway. When Rory wrote to me and said that he's got this narration and the stage direction said, droll Englishman, he thought of me.
3: <laughs> I can see it.
2: <laughs> can you give us a preview of your drollest English line that you've had to say? I can't. Aww. No, I can't.
0: Because just, I wish I could, just at this moment, it's being uh, sent out to festivals. Oh. And one of the things they do with South by Southwest or Tribeca or Venice or wherever it goes is uh it's it's always an exclusivity agreement. We'll forgive so,
2: you then on this time. Okay, okay. But maybe at Harrogate <laughs> you can do a, a one just for me, a private <laughs> <of the record laughs> preview
0: Well, without telling people. Yes. Ah, undercover. Undercover, like secret agent. Getting
2: into character for the yeah. panel. It's all going full circle.
0: Just before we move <laughs> on, just to say, I have interviewed both Ava Glass and Jack Jewett. Mm. Just saying, you know, if you want some questions for them. I've got some. Oh,
2: well, I mean, always. I mean, they are, yeah, yeah, they're a fascinating, fascinating pair. And their books are so brilliant and wildly different. All of your books are so brilliant and wildly different. It's going to be a great chat. It
0: was great. It was superb. Talking to Jack about The Secret Diary of Samuel Pepys and talking to Ava Glass about The Chase. They're so different, but they both have this brilliant energy and these wonderfully convincing characters who have depth and conflict within them. It's not just that the world around them is a mess and they're trying to fix it, but inside those characters, there are conflicts that make them human and deep and worth paying attention to.
2: Much like in your books.
0: That's the idea. You're quite good at it. We we deviated (laughs) from Bunting Manor. So here's the thing, Murder at Church Lodge is February 1972. And it just so happens that somebody hears about the fact that Maisie solves this crime who lives nearby in the village, in in the Sussex Downs, the village of Bunting, Mm -hmm. and asks her to come and help solve. And the thing is, Maisie is stuck. You see, she lives in Paris. She was earlier in her, she's 34 years old. She spent two to three year tours in the army, and then went into the hospitality industry, and she's working in Paris. And for all of this awful, awful adventure around Stephen's murder, she's not earning any money she's away from home she for a little while she's able to stay in the house that stephen lived in but that will soon be repossessed and so she has to but she has to stick around for the trial Mm. right because that isn't going to happen tomorrow and so in a sense she thinks oh well this could work i'll go to bunting and i'll find out what this wealthy woman wants she seems to have money and that would solve one of my problems it also means of course that she doesn't disappear back to paris away from Jack Wingard. And who would want to leave Jack Wingard yeah. behind? The handsome
2: <laughs> Jack, absolutely not. Yeah, right? And I also, can I just say, lovely to see you continuing your French connection. I know how much France means to you on a personal level. So it's lovely to see you keeping that alive. I mean, obviously, that's a conscious decision on your part to keep the, the French element running through your books.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's an enormous part of my life, having having lived in France having lived in Paris and worked as a translator and an interpreter. And then, gosh, how many years later? Probably 10 years later, Kate and I acquiring a house in Carcassonne that's at the heart of her Languedoc trilogy, Labyrinth and Sepulchre and Citadel. So that's, yeah, It's uh, it, in terms of inspiration, it's been really good to us. Mm. But I, actually, Ava asked me a Ava Glass asked me about the the connection with spying. And I have no direct connection with spying. But because I worked as an interpreter at OECD and UNESCO and European community, as it was back then, European Union, I came across those people. Mm. I saw them, you know, talking in undertones, not wanting anyone to. And I was never really sure. If what they had to say was actually secret, <laughs> or if they were just sort of playing <laughs> made them important.
2: Also, it's exactly what a spy would say. Is I was never really involved in it, but yeah, sure you weren't, Greg. Mm. Mm. That's what I
0: would say. Yeah, that's definitely what I would say. In fact, I just did. You did, right? and we yeah. have it recorded. Anyway, moving, moving on to the next step. So, murder at church lodge, murder at Bunting Manor. So that takes us to November next March. Therefore is Murder at Chichester Theatre.
2: Oh, you heard it here first, everyone. <laughs>
0: 1972, the first show at in the summer season at Chichester Theatre was The Beggar's Opera. And of course, that's the show that's being rehearsed in Murder at Chichester Theatre. And Maisie, because of her linguistic ability, is given the job of, Essentially, nursemaiding the French star of the beggar's opera, who's really a film actress, <gasps> who nobody thinks is going to be any good on the big stage with <laughs> twelve hundred people watching, and she's given this job to try and look after her and make sure that she gives a decent performance. And do you know what? There's a murder.
2: What? No. <laughs> no way. <laughs> you continue to surprise greg moss it's
0: extraordinary isn't it yeah. <laughs> bad
2: luck Terrible. Maisie really has some bad luck following her around huh
0: i think i think it's good luck because because she's successful yes that, for that is not a spoiler in cozy crime no your hero will see yeah. and also that means that by the time the trials have all happened so it's february uh march april may by the time may has come around the trial's over that's all in the past and she's back in Paris, and she's working at her job as this very select tour guide to the capital of France. And her boss, Madame de Rosette, who's a bit of a monster, has organized this party. And she's made a play of all her aristocratic connections and it's taking place in a vast marquee on the Piazza of Notre Dame. And so the fourth one that will come out next July is Murder at Notre Dame. Oh, so there is a murder Love in that, that one
2: too. <laughs> oh my god! Yes. <laughs> okay, good. Just checking. That, I mean, you've sold us on the series already. We're already in now.
0: Good. we yeah. definitely... Good news.
2: Very exciting. God, what, what a year you're having. This is fantastic. It
0: is all good. Yeah.
2: And I, I imagine knowing you and how you are, beyond this, beyond The Coming Darkness and that series as well, do you have any other genres you want to dip your toe in or experiment with? <laughs>
0: No, not exactly a genre, but I I do have a work in progress. Of course you do. (laughs) (laughs) Which remains mysterious, um, which is set in the present day because the Coming Darkness series is 2037 Mm. in the future. Mm -hmm. Murder at Church Lodge, the Magies Cooper Mysteries are set in 1972. And because they start in February, I'll have to write 12 of them if I want to even (laughs) get to 1973, right, if they're one a month. (laughs) That's quite a lot. I mean ellie griffiths just stopped didn't mm. she ruth Galloway at 12 so maybe that's the ceiling wow Even people are interested who knows and in fact i asked her about that i asked her if it was really true and she said to me you can only write what you want to write but who knows
2: that's great that's great advice i guess that helps if you actually want to write it that would i <laughs>
0: know oh, you must yeah. yeah you have to have that urgency Anyway, the point is uh, something in the present day I have been experimenting with. Mm. So I've got a hero and I've got um, an, an outline of the plot. I know where it happens uh, today. It happens on the Suffolk coast. You know, the Suffolk coast is quite sort of crinkly and there's some, there's some very shishy villages <laughs> that lots of people from Islington live in at the weekend. Yeah, <laughs> But also, there's also, you know, a, a, a deprived population. There's a lot of Brexit voting. There's, uh, in the in the cities like Ipswich and Lowestoft, there's a lot of deprivation, and um, yeah, it's a really interesting place, I think, for a contemporary murder mystery.
3: Dare I ask? Do you have a preference on what era is your favourite to write? They must be quite mm-hmm. different in approach.
0: Okay, so when I was eleven in 1972, the Maisie Cooper mysteries. Mm. That's easy in the sense that I just have to remember things. Yeah whereas for the coming darkness series i have to imagine 15 years hence Mm. and make it all tie together and all has to be rational and i have to read scientific american and i have to read the science pages in the guardian and you know i have to make sure it all all works but there's a satisfaction in that as well Mm. so that doesn't mean that it's harder in a bad way yeah it it's it's work that you want to do it's work that doesn't seem fastidious and annoying it's work that seems valuable Mm. Oh, whereas the, the present day, the Suffolk coastline, is a place I know really well. I've produced a few plays that I've that I've performed in, in theatres over there, and I've got good friends who live there. So, um, so there's that that I benefit from as well. I'll give you a, one of the plot lines in it. You'll like this. In the village where my friend lives, there's a farmer who farms pigs. You may know that a pig farm is not are aromatically neutral.
2: No, I'm aware, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah.
0: (laughs) Anyway, the pig farmer came up to somebody in the pub, one of the well-off Islingtonites in the pub, and said, I could put pigs in that field. And the other person said, could you? Not knowing really what was going on. Then the farmer said, on the other hand, maybe I won't. And he was being blackmailed because it was the the field out the back of his house.
2: And the farmer wanted him to
0: say, if I give you five grand, will you promise not to put pigs in that field for the next 10
2: years wow that is a powerful blackmail tool i never would have thought of that that's genius yeah
0: <laughs> blackmail by stink. i
2: tell you what like my, my my mind instantly went to the darkest thing though and i thought you were gonna talk about how pigs can eat a human body straight away i was like yeah
0: yeah why wouldn't they if you don't pay up well, <laughs> yeah yeah but pigs they they would only do so if they were hungry, wouldn't
2: they? Yeah, no, they're not well treated pigs. Don't, I don't think. <laughs>
0: you you don't see pigs on the streets threatening people. My God, yeah. No, <laughs> no, that would be terrible. I I don't believe pigs would do that. No, I think it would be because they were mistreated. Well, mm.
2: uh, and they're very intelligent, as we know. Um, and for sure, yeah. No, I wouldn't mess. I wouldn't mess with a pig.
0: <laughs> anyway, that story. That that story of Blackmail by Stink, that comes up in this um, work in progress that I've not finished yet, but it is really good fun to write. But because you you get into this odd sort of rhythm because, so like you were saying earlier, Frankie, I just, I've recently finished the fifth draft of um, The Coming Storm. And so I've been making liberal use of my second brain, the one that belongs to my editor. So that's great. (laughs) And I I then had, um, because... Because over the uh, over Glastonbury, our daughter was away. We were looking after her nine-month-old child. And so that was a good break, like a mental refresher.
3: First man that has ever said that having a nine-month-old in the house was a good break. <laughs> yes.
0: But Sarah, you can't do anything else, can you? No, you can't. can't. That's true. Right? Mm-hmm. And so this morning... Because Martha and her son were on their way back to London. This morning, I went on to my next task, which was proofreading Murder at Bunting Manor. So that's Maisie Cooper number two. And it was quite an odd thing to do at first, because I'd worked so hard inside the flow of The Coming Storm in the thriller voice. I started thinking, hang on a minute, I must change this and make it, you know, more evil. (laughs) But of course, you don't have to make it more evil. No. It's it's just right. It's only proofreading. It's it's not there in front of me for reassessment. It's there to check it's properly spelt. Mm. And I haven't used the word I don't know box three times in one paragraph.
1: Yeah.
3: yeah. <laughs> Bonus if you haven't. I know we said that we weren't going to ask you the same questions as last time, but I have to ask again. What's the last book that you read and loved? Because I'm sure you've read quite a few since last time. Uh,
0: it, Inevitably, because book proofs have recently arrived, it's the ghost ship by Kate Moss. And Is it alright? <laughs> <Yes. laughs> Decent, of, <laughs> of course. <laughs> course. Yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. And uh Mac-Mil- Mantle Macmillan are doing an amazing campaign for it. When when Kate talks about it, so just a a bit of context, because Kate always writes in moments of history where huge geopolitical things are happening, Mm. like the Crusades, Mm. or in the case of the Burning Chambers, the City of Tears and the Ghost Ship, uh, the French Wars of Religion, in which it's the Protestants being persecuted by the Catholics and expelled. So the opposite of what we did in in England. The Huguenots, the Protestants, a lot of them end up in what's today Holland, uh, so the Duchy of Orange back then, and for quite a while they're okay there, But then they get the opportunity, they they do have increasing persecution, and and they get the opportunity, they're invited to go to Southern Africa, because the landscape of Southern Africa is very similar to the landscape of the Pyrenees, the foothills of the Pyrenees, where great wine is made. And so they're invited to go to South Africa and become uh, grape farmers, winemakers, in whatever it is, it's about 10,000 miles away, isn't it? Anyway. Because at that time, it was obviously sail ships. Mm. It's a very long and arduous voyage. And the ships would have to make stopovers. And one of the most important stopovers was the Canary Islands, where they could take on fresh water and fresh fruit, and they didn't all die of scurvy or or thirst. And that's where Kate's novel, The Ghost Ship, is set. Because, of course, anywhere there were many sailing ships plying the trade routes, there were pirates. And so Kate's new novel, The Ghost Ship, is a novel of lesbian pirates.
2: Love that. Amazing. Your dinner table conversations just must just be fascinating in your house. <laughs> I like, yeah. can't even imagine.
0: <laughs> wow. Yeah. You you don't necessarily talk about your fictional people.
2: How do you not talk about lesbian pirates over dinner? Well, you
0: right, actually. <laughs> I wonder why you don't. I'm yeah. going to bring it up. But I, I, I know I do know why. Because It's a, a thing that... Oh, who was it? I think it was Anthony Burgess who said it. He said... Um, you can spend the inspiration for an entire novel in one evening in the pub.
2: <laughs> mm. and,
3: Very true. You, you, know, you, you waste it. Drink-
0: you, you spend a couple of hours telling people about what a brilliant idea it is, and the next day you've got nothing left to discover and no more joy left in the discovery.
2: Plus a hangover.
0: <laughs> yeah, well,
2: exactly.
3: That's not going to help. Is <laughs> it's it? not. Oh, brilliant. okay. Well, Screw Frankie's birthday. I'm going to buy that for me, and you can
2: have it when I'm done, Frankie. Oh. I've seen how you treat books, Sarah. I don't want your secondhand ones. Thank you very much. You
3: <sighs> make me sound awful, yes. Greg. Are you a spine cracker and a page folder? Oh, yeah. Thank uh, you. Yeah, oh, no, great.
0: Both, both of the above. Yes. I picked up, because um, I, I managed to get fit, uh, the grandchild to go to sleep, and I picked up the nearest book, and it was Ben Aronovich's Rivers of London, which is mm-hmm. a great book. And uh, uh, once I was 20 pages in, it's, you know, I've got a child here and a book there. You can't be messing about with a book that's closing on itself. Yes. You've got to break the spine so it stays open.
2: Yep. Thank you, but great. I, I often like to say a book is like a baby. You should never break its spine. <laughs> so that's just a personal preference.
0: Oh, do, you, do you actually have a baby?
2: No, thank God.
0: <laughs> if you did, you might discover that a baby is not very much like a book. Well,
2: saying. I just, I just personally believe I respect the baby spine, and I respect the spine of a book, and <laughs> that's just personal preference. But anyway, yeah. So. I'm really curious as well. Obviously, you've been reading a lot of cozy crime, I imagine, over the years and in general to be ready for this kind of i'm jumping ahead slightly but as we would normally do at the end of our episodes we ask what book would you like to be buried with you've already been buried but you've been brought back to life for their purposes of this episode so hooray oh. but we're gonna have to kill you again unfortunately no but
0: do you remember what i said frankie i can't remember
2: I, do you know what i actually can't remember and i meant to look it up because it's been a while <laughs> but it was a great yeah. choice i'm sure and do you know what actually i do remember what it was shockingly it was one of your wife's books it, it was between two of them if i recall okay
0: well, we can move on from that because we've already cited the ghost ship. It's all Yeah, good. okay. You've earned your brownie points. So.
3: But
2: the question, we were going to put a slightly cosy lens on this and say, if you could had to be buried with one cosy crime book, what would you pick?
0: Yeah, it's really straightforward because I think the best plotter of all of them is Nio Marsh, mm. who was a New Zealand writer who, who wrote between i think she published the first one about 1932 and the last one about 1980 in fact she lived for so long that i actually knew her editor wow i was uh younger anyway <laughs> and then there are there are, i think there's two that are the absolute pinnacle of these brilliantly plotted but oh she's called nio by the way because that's she's from new zealand and that's the name of a newly new zealand shrub <laughs> She was, like, that? like somebody might be called Hyacinth. Yeah.
2: I.K. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah.
0: Holly. Anyway. Uh, yes. Polly. <laughs> so, it, it's a difficult choice between two. One of them is called Death in a White Tie, which has an absolutely epically brilliant clue about who saw a thing on the pie crust table on the second landing and therefore did the murder because of when the thing was there on the pie crust table on the second landing. And it's so brilliantly plotted in the midst of this huge debutante's ball with about 800 people present in a massive house somewhere in Belgravia, (laughs) London, set soon after the Second World War, I think. So that's that's a brilliant one. But I probably, because of the theatrical connection, I'd go for opening night. And I'll tell you why. Because in opening night, the murder doesn't happen until the middle page of the book. And you, the reader, you've seen everything that led up to it.
1: Ooh. So you know
0: everything, right? And then Roderick Allen, the detective, arrives and he questions everybody one after another. And so you see it all again in the witness testimony and you still don't know who did it. Wow. Yeah, it's a it's a complete tour de force. It's a wonderful book.
2: Oh, you've sold me. Yeah, I need to read this. Um, and And do you see like a disparity between what you know happened versus the witness um, testimony within that or...?
0: yeah of course that's really well fascinating. Put, Frankie, yes but then that's that's what that's what we offer the reader, isn't it? We, we offer the reader the opportunity to balance what how the different characters see the events. and then I think um I mean I'm, some people are very successful with uh, novels with unreliable narrators, but they don't appeal to me so much, because when the narrator says that it's a Tuesday or it was raining or the traffic was heavy or whatever. I want, to be- I want to know that those facts are true, mm. but the characters might try to deceive me. Mm.
2: And yes. And
0: I find that more satisfying than a book in which nothing is to be trusted. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I know what you mean. I think it's it's so hard as well to do it in a way that completely catches you off guard. I think I, I just think of, spoiler this, is a spoiler, this book's been out a long time, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, for example, <laughs> oh. where it was kind of, that was probably the, one of the first times it would ever been done, almost, that rug pull moment and, yeah, it changed everything.
0: Yeah, so some people find that frustrating, but it, it's a bit like um, a friend of mine. I used to teach an MA in creative writing for the University of Sussex, and a friend of mine on that program did a, uh, she watched, she came in one day, and I said, um, like, you do, what you've been doing? She said, oh, I watched Sixth Sense, you know, the movie, mm. Bruce Willis movie, Yeah. <laughs> And I said, Did you enjoy it? She said, um, I had to watch it again straight away. <laughs> and I said, Why was that? And she said, Well, I was sure that I'd been tricked. So I had to watch it again straight <laughs> away. And it turns out it was all completely honest and it made sense. Brilliant. But that's, that's an unreliable narrator yes, movie. Yes, it, it, it is. It's, all, it's deliberately hidden from you what's going yeah. on by, you know, the, and the narrator is the camera work and the the sequence of events so i think maybe with roger ackroyd you could say that there are probably enough Mm. clues for you to doubt the narrator
2: yeah that's I mean i don't think it's a spoiler at this point about sixth sense either that's been out a long time but i saw a really funny tweet about that film the other day saying the most depressing part of that film is that he was dead the whole time but he still went to work (laughs) 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 what what a bleak existence
0: (laughs) (laughs) There was, at the theatre I work in, in the West End, The Criterion, we, we recently had a show called 222. Mm. Uh, that's uh, I've written like... I've seen that. Card. I've seen it, yeah. Okay. So that's another really interesting show mm. where there's a supernatural presence that we won't describe. No. But there's a supernatural presence and it makes you think when you know. It makes you think back and you think, oh no, that made sense. That made sense. That made sense. And there's a really brilliant thing there. And I think it's analogous to this thing about having... A wonderful climax that resolves several storylines all at once that we were talking about earlier. What happens in the climax is that you think about all those previous moments, which now you realize on reflection were clues. Mm. So in the last 20 pages of the book, you're not just thinking about the last 20 pages. You're also thinking about that thing on page 20 and the thing on page 80 and the thing on page 120 and so on. So it brings it all back to life in the climax. Yeah.
2: Oh, Greg, I mean, just like last time, I could listen to you talk forever. And so thank you so much for coming back and talking to us about Murder at Church Lodge. Can't wait for everyone to, we've we've been lucky enough to read it already, but I can't wait for it to be out in the world. And remind us all of the release dates of the hundreds of books you've got coming out (laughs) within, within your family as well as yours.
0: So the Maisie Cooper mysteries will be July, November, March, July. The first one on the 13th of July. That's about a week after your birthday, don't forget.
2: And yours, Greg, <laughs> and yours.
0: <laughs> uh, then The Coming Storm will come out next April, and then everything else is too far away for me to even think about it.
2: I think you're packing quite a lot in that time, so I think, yeah.
0: Oh, I forgot. No, the coming, the coming Darkness, paperback in September, I think.
2: Yes. Ah. Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> It's safe to say that the mosses are taking over the world, I think.
0: Well, one small corner of it.
2: Okay. <laughs> and I'm good with it. Yeah. yeah. Will you come
3: back and speak to us again
2: after the next one?
0: Or are you sick let's of the sight of us that. now? <laughs> no, let's do that. That would Excellent. be
2: great. You're just going to be a co-host at this point, Greg. You're <laughs> going to be back all the time.
0: Oh my God, we could get somebody else in as well. We could have four Zoom pictures on us. We could have Kate on.
2: <laughs> we'll line Kate up.
0: I will email her.
2: <laughs> Lovely,
0: and thank copy you. you in. Right. Yeah, if
2: she could squeeze you in, that would be wonderful. Yeah.
0: I will email her and copy you in. You must talk to her about the ghost ship. Yes, to, absolutely. absolutely.
2: Yeah. Oh, and Greg, where can people follow you online to hear more about everything you've got going on?
0: Well, I don't know if you know this, but um, more or less everybody in theatre is on Twitter. So I have. You can find me as at Greg Moss. I have a website which is, you won't be surprised to hear, gregmoss.com. <laughs> I'm also Greg Moss on Facebook. I'm also Greg Moss on Instagram. So, you know, more or less anywhere. In conclusion,
2: Greg Moss. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Perfect. And Sarah, where can people find us
3: online? You can find us on some of the social medias at Red and Buried Podcast, or you can email
2: us at red at gmail.com. Well done. what a pro for everyone listening as well if you're going to be in Harrogate for the uh, the Crime Writing Festival come and see me and Greg because you can ask him hopefully I don't know if we're going to do audience questions I hope we do let's get your questions in too
0: yeah there'll be four authors on the platform so there'll be a lot going on but there's always time for questions
2: and that's it you're all such good talkers as well so it's going to be it's going to be fascinating I cannot wait
0: ah I might be sullen who knows you've
2: sullen as if
0: (laughs) You know the
2: meaning of the word. <laughs> Fantastic, Greg! Thank you so much, and thank everyone, go you. out and just buy all of Greg's books. Everything that comes out every ten minutes or so that he's writing, and uh, and obviously Kate's as well. And then in your in the future, your sons, just the whole family support the Moss <laughs> Dynasty. Is what I'm saying.
0: Love it! Thank you for having me.
2: Wonderful. Anytime. Yeah, every week. And thank you for listening, everyone. We'll be back very soon with another episode. Until then. Have a good life! I don't know how to end podcasts, Sarah. Say something better. Bye! Oh, bye.
1: (laughs) If I asked you to think about Japanese movies, what do you picture? Anime, no doubt. You think of the beautifully rendered works of Studio Ghibli. Maybe you picture Godzilla and his coterie of city-ravaging kaiju. Perhaps you see Toshido Mifune wandering the countryside and armed with only his wit and his blade. And I know you're trying not to think about the pale-faced ghost with long hair and creepy noises. And maybe you're a fan of the exploitation type of cinema, where schoolgirls wield chainsaws and machine guns with abandon. My name's Perry Constantine. I'm an author and a teacher, and back when I was in college, I had the exact same image of Japanese films as you did. It was my love and interest in these movies that led me to move to Japan. Now, almost 20 years later, I'm still here and teaching classes about Japanese film. What I've learned in that time is that Japanese movies are so much more diverse than just anime or kaiju or samurai. Sure, those movies are fun, by exploring the wide range of Japanese cinema, there's so much we can learn about Japanese history, society, and culture. That's why I started Japan on Film. In each episode, I'm joined by a different guest to help me spotlight just some of these excellent movies. We'll be watching the good, the bad, the popular, and the bizarre. Come along with us on a journey into the wide, wonderful, and sometimes very weird world of Japanese cinema. Listen to the Japan on Film podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit our website, japanonfilm.com.